The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. Just a quick break to recommend our recent sponsor's Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes reading better by offering members a few new book selections each month to help you cut through the noise, save time, and make it easier to decide what to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. All of these books are good, so you really can't go wrong. Book of the Month helps readers like you and I find books that we wouldn't normally discover on our own. The cool part is selections largely focus on new and upcoming authors in multiple genres. Book of the Month also recently launched curated audiobooks, so members can get a hardcover or an audiobook each month, which you can then download and listen to right in the app. This month, I chose A Little Supernatural Fair in Murder Road by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James, described as the story of a young couple that find themselves haunted by a string of gruesome murders committed along an old deserted road in this terrifying new novel. Just go to bookofthemonth.com to pick your first book and join Book of the Month. That's bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can join and get that first book for just $9.99 with the code CHIRP. That's C-H-I-R-P. Enjoy. Why did that book make it big? Or what is it that this one book of mine had that really resonated with readers and this other book didn't? What makes the bestseller? What effect does reading have on us? What is it that all the big fandom enabling properties have in common? And in my lab, I could actually develop theories about that and test those theories, be like, well, let's bring 400 people in and systematically manipulate these variables and see which ones of them actually matter. And so the wonderful thing about science is you're constantly getting answers to these questions that otherwise all you have is theories. And then those answers let you revise the theories and make future predictions. And so I was in this lovely space for a long time where I was doing science on all of these big questions about fiction and fandom and why we as a species love stories and what it is about certain stories that make us absolutely obsessed. And then I could test those theories in a laboratory setting but I could also turn around and go and test them as a writer. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Lynn Barnes spoke to me about how to write seven novels in 18 months, the psychology of fiction and fandom, and her latest YA mystery, The Brothers Hawthorne. Jen is the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 acclaimed young adult novels, including The Inheritance Games Trilogy, Little White Lies, Dudley Little Scandals, The Lovely and the Lost, and The Naturals series. Her latest is The Brothers Hawthorne, described as Knives Out-esque by Publishers Weekly. It's a story of two brothers drawn into twisted games on opposite sides of the globe, who, with the help of their brothers and the girl who inherited their grandfather's fortune, must dig deep to decide who they want to be and what each of them will sacrifice to win. Jen is a Fulbright scholar with advanced degrees in psychology, psychiatry, and cognitive science, including a PhD from Yale, and is one of the leading experts on the psychology of fandom and the cognitive science of fiction and the imagination. In this file, Jen and I discussed her study of autism and why neurodivergence relies so heavily on story 
how her best-selling trilogy went viral on TikTok, why she writes for reluctant readers, how to write mysteries with intricate puzzles, twists, turns, and reveals, her theories on why readers love fiction, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are rolling once again. I am honored today to be joined by an esteemed guest. I have the number one New York Times bestselling author, Jennifer Lynn Barnes, is hanging out with us today, and I can't wait to talk about all things writing. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I understand you're on Central Time, and uh, are you still a professor at the University of Oklahoma? I am not. I was a professor at OU for nine and a half years and then finally hit the point with two jobs and three kids uh, that I decided to scale back to just writing about a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, Yeah, uh, you got a lot going on and and I understand in the throes of uh, kind of a uh, world tour for your latest. Yeah, I'm a brief break at home before I hit the road again a day after tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. And I can't wait to talk about the latest, the Brothers Hawthorne, of course, get into that interesting story. And um, yeah, I want to pick your brain about all things writing. But before that, talk just a little bit about your superhero origin story um, as an author and kind of this really, really fascinating career that you've had, of course, um, as you mentioned, not only as a, a mom and a uh, college professor, but as a published author from like the age of 19, I think, like really early. Yes. Yeah. I started, so my senior year in high school, I'd always loved writing, but I had a goal that before I graduated high school, I wanted to finish a book. Now, of course, that's a book that never saw the light of day, nor should it have seen the light of day, but (laughs) I just wanted to finish something. And so over winter break, my senior year, I finished my first attempt at a book. And I just fell in love with uh, actually with writing endings because the beginning's fun and the end is fun, but the middle is work. Uh, But I'd gotten to the end of a first book and then ended up writing between my senior year of high school and my freshman and sophomore year of, of college, I wrote seven different books. And it was the seventh book that I wrote that ended up being the first book that sold. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this is an incredible story. So you wrote, wait, you wrote seven books in one year? Uh, it was about 18 months. Okay. In about 18 months, I wrote seven books. You know, Amazing. started off very bad, then a little less bad, then a little less bad as you learn stuff with each book you write. That's incredible. Um, okay, so that's, that's some unusual drive for someone that age. But uh, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that you've had this incredible also academic career and almost an inconceivable kind of just output. But so talk a little bit about um, being a Fulbright scholar um, and also having these multiple advanced degrees and not only cognitive science, but also psychology and psychiatry 
and a PhD from from Yale. Um, this is all kind of head spinning uh, to think that, and, and that you've also had this um, prolific career, and now you know, kind of looking at like, tw- is it twenty novels now? I think Brothers Hawthorne, I counted the other day, and I'm pretty sure it's number 24. Incredible. Okay, so number 24, um, and this academic career where, as you had mentioned, you were a professor at uh, University of Oklahoma, where you were teaching not only psychology, but also um, professional writing, right? Right. So, yeah, I think part of the thing with starting really young, with, you know, being a high school student or college freshman, when I first started getting involved in this industry, meant that it was my default to do multiple things, because I was always a student and a writer. Um, In college, I used to write between two and four in the morning, and I ended up selling my first five books while I was still in college. Um, And then uh, after I finished college, I went overseas to Cambridge University for a year as a Fulbright Scholar, um, where I worked at the um, Autism Research Center over there and studied how people with and without autism um, engage with stories. And then I came back to Yale, which is also where I did my undergrad. I came back for my PhD and studied um, the psychology of fiction and the imagination a little bit more. Uh, And then ended up being a professor where I had my own lab where I studied the psychology of fandom and the cognitive science of fiction. And, you know, I always said I didn't have a day job. I had two careers and I was just as passionate about the science as I was about the writing, which is part of the reason it took me so long to scale back to one career is that I really and truly love them both. Because the just beautiful thing about the science end of things is like I had a lab as authors. We always have these questions like why did that book make it big? Or what is it that this one book of mine had that really resonated with readers and this other book didn't? What makes the bestseller? What effect does reading have on us? What is it that all the big fandom enabling properties have in common? And in my lab, I could actually develop theories about that and test those theories, be like, well, let's bring 400 people in and systematically manipulate these variables and see which ones of them actually matter. And so the wonderful thing about science is you're constantly getting answers to these questions that otherwise all you have is theories. And then those answers let you revise the theories and make future predictions. And so I was in this lovely space for a long time where I was doing science on all of these big questions about fiction and fandom and why we as a species love stories and what it is about certain stories that make us absolutely obsessed. And then I could test those theories in a laboratory setting But I could also turn around and go and test them as a writer uh, by sort of saying, here's what all these theories predict people should like in books. What if I put all of that in one book? Um, And the first time I did that for a book, just took everything I knew about the psychology of fiction and put it all in one book was The Inheritance Games, which ended up being, it was my 21st book and it was the first book in my career that really took off. And I mean, just it's a really inspiring and interesting career. And of course, Inheritance Games, as you mentioned, uh, was a number one New York Times bestseller, and well, I believe was on the list for forty-eight weeks or something. Incredible. Yeah, and like I was, like I said, it was book twenty-one. I never thought I would even be on a list for one week, right? Like my writing career was always the game of 
how can I stay in the game long enough to do just one more book? <laughs> and like at the point in time that Inheritance Games came out, I already had my backup plan in case I couldn't publish another book after that one. I was like, okay, I'm going to change my name and I'm going to probably write like middle grade or adult. And I had the two concepts that I was going to hop to. Like I had the strategy in place because I always had the strategy in place of what if I have to reinvent? Because what if the sales record isn't there and I can't sell another book? Um, and then Inheritance Games, you know, no one expects 21 books into a career, um, a very midlist career for the most part, just to suddenly have something that really takes off. I certainly never even dreamed that it would find the audience that it's found. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, what a great story of, of reinvention. Um, and as you said, you had pondered like a nom de plume and, and some other reinvention um, strategies. But in truth, pouring this incredible um, wealth of wisdom and information that you had from your scientific career, and your academic career, that none of that was necessary. Really interesting story. So 2 million copies later, uh, published in over 30 languages, and uh, it is a TikTok like viral sensation also, which you know, can't hurt, right? <laughs> no, I mean, TikTok has sold so many copies of that book. It's just this wonderful place where, you know, we all know that word of mouth always matters. Like people telling their friends to read a book always sold copies of books. Um, and now with TikTok, they're not just telling their immediate friends to read it. Like I was on there the other day and the home screen shot a video to me about one of my other series. And it had been liked like 40,000 times or something in a very wow. small span of time. So taking that word of mouth that always existed and really blowing it up so that readers are disconnected all over the world is just uh, an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah. So your backlist then catches fire and, and is like you're, you're seeing the, the effect. There, there is one backlist series that my publisher repackaged earlier this year. It's called The Naturals. It's about an FBI think tank that uses teenagers to profile serial killers, kind of a teenage criminal mind. Um, and prior to Inheritance Games, it was my most successful series. It did very well for me when I came out. Didn't explode, never hit any lists, but was a really consistent, really great seller for me. Um, and they put new covers on that uh, last May, and then it caught on on TikTok too. And so now we've seen a huge influx of new readers to the series. And it was really interesting for me that um, Inheritance Games taking off alone wasn't enough to get large number of readers to the naturals or to my backlist. It was only after the repackage happened and not just after the repackage happened, but probably three to four weeks after the repackage was published, um, it started catching on on TikTok. And then once it caught on on TikTok, then we saw like a much larger number of readers going from inheritance games to naturals, but they kind of needed TikTok as the middleman to get them there. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one for the ages. It's um, truly, truly a, a fascinating story and path to bestseller. And of course, you've been called a master of puzzles and plot twists. The series, uh, the inheritance games, has been described as uh, meticulously crafted. 
like the film Knives Out for the YA world. And that's cool. And you've also done some writing for TV and, and, and um, writing and production for television or streamers as well. Is that right? Yeah. So this is back when I first became a professor at OU. So it would have been like 10 years ago now, because of course I wasn't busy enough as a first year professor in writing books. I decided <laughs> to start writing TV shows. So I did. Um, I wrote one pilot for MTV. I wrote one for USA. I sold one to a production company and sort of um, stuck my toe into that world for a while, but then eventually retreated back um, to have both feet in the world of books because it turns out that books, science, and TV was a little much. So now if I'm involved on the TV end, it's mostly in a producer capacity on my own um, book to film projects rather than yeah. doing original TV writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, is the strike affecting any of your um aforementioned um adaptations at all or oh, do you yes. have any of, of yeah. course the strike affects you know all of the projects because the writers on various projects have stopped work they are striking to get the deal that they need to make it a viable profession from the uh amptp um so you know we are months into a strike that's uh, taken everything to a standstill. Um, but it is a strike that I very much support. Yeah, yeah. Standing in solidarity with with your fellow scribes, yes. of course. Um, yeah, uh, well, you know, congrats on the successes of the series. And of course, we're today we're talking about the latest, um, which is technically a standalone, but but it, it's in the same world as the Inheritance games, right? We're talking about the Brothers Hawthorne. Right. So the Brothers Hawthorne is, it's a standalone. You can come to it never having read any of the Inheritance games. It is also a sequel to the Inheritance games, and it's a prequel to what comes next in this universe, which is a series called The Grandest Game. Um, so I also kind of refer to it as my bridge novel. So you can come to it having read nothing. If you've read Inheritance Games, it's a nice follow-up, and it also sets up some of the characters and overarching mystery arcs that you'll get to see later on. So completely standalone, but also sort of serves this function of <laughs> connecting all the different pieces of the world that I wanted to lay out. So sort of looking at the overall series arc, it forms this very important piece of it, and yet can also be read just entirely by itself. Very cool. Four brothers, two missions, and of course, the brothers are drawn into twisted games on opposite sides of the globe, and with the help of their brothers and the girl who inherited their grandfather's fortune must dig deep to decide who they want to be and what each of them will sacrifice to win. Yeah, congrats on the latest. How are you feeling? What's the vibe over there now uh, that this is out in the world and you're getting to get out there and meet meet your uh, readers and your fans? It has been so incredible. I think the, the most incredible thing about having a series, you know, suddenly and unexpectedly really take off is just getting to see all of those readers who've had an opportunity not just to read and fall in love with the books, but to really invest in them in huge ways. So, you know, we have people showing up to the signings wearing Hawthorne clothes. And like I walked away with this giant stack like I can fill my entire arm with Taylor Swift style bracelets that people made from the book <laughs> wow. and gave to me. I had one woman show up with her grandmother and said the woman was 30 and she said she and her grandmother had been reading books together since they were 12 since she was 12 
and she and grandma both said that this series was their favorite read they'd ever read together. Um, so just going out and seeing all these readers, you know, and as a YA author, getting to hear people say, I didn't like reading. And then I read these books and now I read a book every week and I love reading so much. I had one person tell me, and now I want to major in library science because I want my, my life to be about books now. And before your book, I didn't read at all. And I hated reading. Like I write largely um, in large part for reluctant readers, you know, so that is they're supposed to be very easy to read books that bring you a lot of joy and a lot of escapism. So getting to go out and see that and interact with the readers has just been incredible. And then the other thing, of course, is that because these are mystery books that not only have standalone mystery arcs, but also kind of have these elaborate puzzle sequences that build across books, you know, getting to any time a new book comes out, it's always a relief because it's all of these pieces of the puzzle, all of these twists and turns and reveals that prior to this, only like I and my editor knew. And now it's out in the world and I don't have nearly as many secrets. I still have a ton because I'm working on the next book right now. Um, But there were some big secrets that I knew after this one that I was really excited for people to get to find out. So that's been really cool too. (laughs) That's so cool. Well, I could probably pick your brain all day about this series. Of course, we're not going to do any spoilers. How do you feel about the age range of readers? Do you feel like that this would be appropriate for a fifth grader? I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) So when I'm handing it to people, I usually wait till sixth grade. Not saying there are certainly, I I have fifth graders at my signing who read it. Uh, and I think book one, you'd probably be fine with, but the books get a little older as they go on. So the age range I usually get at signings is I definitely have 12-year-olds who love the books and I have 80-year-olds who love the books. And it kind of runs the gamut after, you know, my I've got wonderful supportive parents who've read every book I've ever written. And when my dad first read Inheritance Games, he called me up and he said, I think every 65-year-old man should read this book. <laughs> that might be overselling it a little bad. He's like, no, I just really, really love this one. So after years of reading like all of my different YA books, just because he's a wonderful, supportive dad, he finally Inheritance Games was the book that was like his book. It's like, we're going to put that on the cover, dad. Every 65-year-old man should read this book. Amazing. Well, it's such a cool, inspiring story and journey. But yeah, um, talk a little bit about, I mean, Certainly, you know, this, as an expert, you've been described as an expert on the psychology of fandom and the cognitive science of fiction and the imagination. And we could probably do a whole episode by just letting you do your first class of the year or whatever. Yeah. um, Talk a little bit about how, again, your writing process and how you're putting together these meticulous puzzles. um, You know, what kind of devices are you using to kind of keep everything organized and are you still writing from 2 to 4 a.m in the morning no. you know kind of, <laughs> no, I, how has that all uh transformed throughout the years right so stuff has changed very much i used to be completely right by the seat of my pants know nothing sit down start i need the main character's first name and maybe the premise of the book and just go now for brothers hawthorne 
I spent about a month in pre-writing and went through two journals. I don't outline per se. It's not like I have a scene by scene outline. Um, what I do is I tend to write down a ton of questions for myself and then I explore different answers for them. Um, so it might be like, what are the core mysteries in this book? Uh, because I always have mysteries plural. And then I'll write down maybe 15 ideas for mysteries to select three. And then for each of those mysteries, I phrase them as a question. And then I come up with every possible idea that could be the ultimate solution. And then once I've done that for multiple mysteries, I kind of see how they dovetail together and then pick the ones that work. And I do the same thing for like character work. So one of the questions in my journal might be like, what does Grayson's arc look like this book? And then I'll write down all the different ideas for it. So it's just like a full month spent in brainstorming, which for me is really fun. So the brainstorming is really fun, sort of just floating out all these ideas and living in possibility and not having to commit to anything, but it's all just really enjoyable to do. I then also make these books all have puzzle sequences. So then I'll sit down and start doing the same thing to make the sequence of puzzles and codes. So by the time I start writing the book, I know a lot of different stuff. So I don't have the beats beat out. I don't even have necessarily the big structural moments hit, but I do have this huge wealth of knowledge of what I want the books to be, how I think I might be able to achieve that, what different like points I want to hit on on the book, what some of the twists and turns are going to be. I kind of organically have in the back of my mind a bunch of red herrings for the mysteries because I've spent days coming up with possible answers I'm not using. And so I kind of just go into the writing process with all of that knowledge and then I tend to sort of like micro outline where I'll outline what do I want to write this week or what do I want to write today to kind of figure that out. Um, and then the second piece of it, in addition to doing sort of all of the like building the actual puzzles and riddles and codes that go into the book and doing all the character work, there is this other level that has to do with the psychology of fiction, which is what are all the different things I want the book to hit on those levels. So there are a bunch of theories of why people like fiction. And for each of those theories, they I've used them to generate a bunch of predictions. And those predictions sort of constitute this. I have this 27 page workbook that I go through that asks me questions about the book so that I can make sure that it's hitting all the things it does or it's supposed to do for both the psychology of fiction and casting a broad net and making it broadly appealing and also the psychology of fandom which is like enabling the audience to get really imaginatively and emotionally invested in the book so that they want more than what's on the page. They want to connect to others. They want to make things. Um, how am I going to invite readers to do that? Uh, and so I have all of these things out there. And then that also plays a key role in my process, especially in revision as well. So when I get a revision letter back from my editor and I figure out the things in the first draft that are falling flat or that aren't quite working, what I usually do is then I go back to the psychology of fiction and see if I can find a fix to the problem that will also let me hit like eight additional buttons um, that then kind of takes the underlying psychological appeal of the book to the next level. Yeah, that's an incredible process. And I, you know, I'm sure that listeners would be keen <laughs> to get their hands on that workbook. But uh, is that something that you ever plan to teach and or share with 
the curious? Yeah. I mean, I used to go around back when I had time. I went to writing conferences and I had multiple talks I gave on the psychology of fiction, the psychology of fandom, outlining some of these predictions for writers. Um, so that is something I used to do very frequently. It's just since the books have taken off, I have not had time to do that as much. Um, if you Google my name and psychology of fiction, you can find some things I've written and put out there for free that'll give you primers on some of this stuff. Um, you can also do writing for the id is a talk I gave that I think is still floating around out there that um, I gave for an organization that I think people can still buy it from. So someday I'd love to record all of these things and put them out there for free. I'd love to write books on the topic. I just haven't had time yet. I can give listeners a couple examples. So for example, I came up with the premise for the Inheritance Games originally using a prompt from the psychology of fiction. And the prompt is based on a theory uh, that I would call the gossip theory of the psychology of fiction put forth by people like my old advisor, Paul Bloom at Yale. Um, and that theory was like, why do we as a species like fiction? It said, it said that the, um, that the reason we like fiction is that it co-ops a liking for gossip. Um, so that we were evolutionarily hardwired to like gossip and that fiction just happens to be gossip about people who are make-believe. So this predicts that what stories are people going to get really interested in? They're the ones that are super, super gossipy. So you look at titles like something like The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, like that's a gossip title right there. <laughs> yeah. um, and so what I did is I ha made up a prompt for myself and I said, what is one thing that could happen to a teenage girl that would make her world famous overnight. And I came up with a lot of really bad things <laughs> that would happen. And then one day I came up with a billionaire dies and leaves her all his money and she has no idea why. Because yes, that would get everyone gossiping. And then that ended up being the initial premise for the inheritance game. So it's things like that where you look at the theory and then you're like, okay, how can I use this theory to take my writing to the next level? Amazing. I have a feeling, and you're, you're welcome to come back anytime and chat with us. It would be really, really fascinating to uh, dig a little bit deeper into that. But that's, that's a really cool clue. And we'll definitely put a, uh, a link. I'll, I'll, I'll Google around and, and find a couple of those talks that you've done on the psychology of fiction and writing for the id. I'm sure pretty fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Of course, I want to ask you one fun one before we jump off here. Um, if you could have dinner with any author from any era to your favorite spot in the world, all expenses paid, of course, you could do dinner, drinks, or both, or you know, we could do a multi-day event, whatever, whatever you want. Uh, who are we taking and where are we going? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I'm a YA author. So a large portion of my heart is in the books I really, truly, deeply loved as a teenager. So I'm going to pick the author of sort of my comfort read as a teenager, which is a book called Wild Magic by Tamara Pierce. And it was a YA fantasy, great found family. I've read it so many times that you can't even see the cover illustration on <laughs> it anymore because Teenage Jen read it like monthly. As for where we're going, I am not much of a traveler and I am such a homebody. So I would probably say wherever you would like to go, author I loved as a teenager. Um, <laughs> because I am like the person who like pretty much is either in my house or is at the local Panera trying to write. Um, <laughs> so I would defer to wiser minds and more adventurous minds on that one. 
Okay. Um, we're not going to the local Panera because yeah. we don't want to <laughs> spoil that for you. Cool. We're taking Tamara Pierce out for a martini in okay. New York City. <laughs> <laughs> Balthazar. Um, all right, cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And of course, um, I can't let you go without just dropping your final inspirational piece on just how to keep going. I would just say one of the things that has been most liberating for me as someone who writes based on the psychology of fiction is to liberate yourself if you're a multi-published author from the worry that what you're doing is too similar from something you've done before or to liberate yourself from sort of all the criticism you might have received. So one thing I believe very strongly is a lot of the things that readers might complain about in books are also the things that other readers deeply, deeply love in books. So I'm a very big advocate of writing what you love into a book with the idea that you just have to trust that there are lots of other people out there that deeply love the same things you love. So that if you just give yourself as many treats in a book as you can by putting all of this stuff, both big picture things, but just all the tropes that you love. Like, I love love triangles between brothers. Lots of people hate that. I love it. So it's going to go into the book, right? But it's also, I love waterfalls. And I love helicopters. I love secret passages. I love puzzles. I love characters who are obsessed with baked goods. So what I do for inspiration and to keep going is I just, I'm a list maker. I make giant, giant lists of all the things I love. So I have lists of all my favorite characters of all time going back to childhood. I have lists of all my favorite tropes. I have lists of all my favorite locations. Anytime I watch a television show or read a book and think, yes, I like that, you're like, okay, dragons, love dragons. That's going on the list. Or, you know, just all of this stuff. And then whenever I get stuck on the scene or whenever it's hard to keep going, my answer is to go to the list of all the things I love and cram as much stuff as I love into the book as possible. Um, with the idea that that's going to make it more pleasurable for me to write, but also probably make it more pleasurable for people to read. Amazing. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. And we thank you for your generosity and your time, your words, your wisdom. Um, best of luck on the, the fascinating world tour. We look forward to uh, hopefully picking your brain again in the future. And um, yeah, thank, thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.